0: At this point, they had been threatened and beaten. Now, I'm not talking about last week's VBS volunteers. I'm talking about the church leaders. In the book of Acts, some of the apostles, they had spent time in jail already. And in the next chapter, we'll see that it culminates with the first Christian losing his life for the faith as a Christian martyr. And while they're all rejoicing in the now 5,000-plus people who have come to faith in a relatively small, short amount of time, they also feel the pressure of the opposition breathing down their neck. Wouldn't you? The Twelve Apostles are undoubtedly incredibly busy people. They are leading this community that is growing in number day by day. They are praying, they are teaching, they are healing. On top of this, they have all the administrative tasks of people coming to them for direction and decisions that need to be made. If you've ever been in an intense situation like this before, you know that eventually something is going to start to slip. They can only do this for so long. And one of two things has to happen. Either they are going to empower people to lead alongside of them, or the young church will be hamstrung from day one. And in many ways, that's where we are at as East Point as well. We are coming out of a pandemic shutdown that we have never experienced before, that cut the attendance of virtually every church in America drastically, including ours. Not only did it cut our attendance, but it also slashed our ministry opportunities and the number of volunteers that we have had serving We have an opportunity this fall to restart strong, but it is going to take everybody. And so what we see happen here is that there is a potentially divisive event in the early church that happened that could have thrown a wrench in everything, but instead the apostles responded in a way that wound up fueling the church to even more growth. And so what we see is instead of being a divisive event, the event that we're going to look at today in Acts, the sixth chapter, winds up being a multiplying event. How do we go from dividing to multiplying? This might be the most important passage we look at in the book of Acts. For where we are at today as a church, this might be the one that we all need to hear I know it is one that affected me more deeply than any of the rest when I was preparing it. And there are a few things that I must be clear with from the start. First is that we need to multiply. We need to multiply our efforts in volunteering so that we have everyone serving, doing something, instead of a few people doing everything. But second, this passage also deals with the church as it is growing in diversity. Our area is growing in diversity in an amazing way. And we must recognize that, and we must do everything we can to reach our growing population around us. No matter what background of religion they have, no matter what color their skin is, they are loved and bear the image of God. So how do we go from dividing to multiplying? Here we see in Acts 6.1 this potentially divisive event in the life of the church. It says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint. This is not your standard run-of-the-mill complaint. This is a legitimate beef with something that is happening It says that the complaint arose by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, this is a big deal. Let me explain a little bit of the context of what is going on here. The 12 disciples of Jesus are all presumably from Galilee. They would have spoken Aramaic as their primary language. Aramaic is like a kissing cousin to Hebrew. However, there were a lot of Jewish people who were spread out all over the known world. This is a phenomenon known as, I believe, the diaspora, um, although I butcher Greek words really bad. So, just imagine that I said the right word there. It's where we get our word dispersion from. Those who were known as Hellenistic Jews would have spoken Greek. And so, what would happen is that as Jewish people got older, if they were living away from Jerusalem, say in Greece or in Rome or wherever else they might have spread out to North Africa, um, they would have wanted, had a desire to move to Jerusalem, not because they had a nice religious, or had a nice retirement home there by the Temple Mount, but rather because they saw it as spiritually significant to die in Jerusalem, to be buried in Jerusalem. And so that means that what happened is that their children, who would have been taking care of them in their homeland, often would not have come with them because their children were still doing their trades, making their money. And yet these people who came, what would happen, these older folks who would come and move to Jerusalem, the men, as we have a history of doing, wind up dying earlier than the women do. Some things never change. And so what would have happened is there would have been a higher percentage of widows in Jerusalem. Specifically, in this case, there is a high percentage of Greek-speaking widows who don't know the language of Jerusalem, the primary language of Jerusalem, and would not be able to communicate their need effectively. And so they would have undoubtedly been some of the people who on the day of Pentecost, when they heard the language proclaimed, when the gospel proclaimed in many languages, would have heard it in Greek, and they would have responded to the gospel. And they would have got tied in with Jewish synagogues there where there were other believers who were following Christ. And yet now as a result of coming to Christ, they see that this language is a barrier for them. And so, while the early church was doing a great thing to try to meet the needs of distributing the foods to the widows, some of them were being overlooked. I want you to think about the vulnerability of these Greek speaking widows for a moment with me. They didn't know the main local language. Have you ever been somewhere where nobody else knew English? It's frustrating. That means they didn't have a voice either. They didn't have a family structure left to care for them. The people in leadership would not have been as familiar with them because of the language barrier. They had no way to provide for themselves. There was no social safety net. And there probably would have been some distinctions in race as well, as up to 500 years of living in a different place and marrying a different line of people inevitably would have made their physical appearance different than the average Jew around Jerusalem. These are extremely vulnerable people. And it would have been very easy for the early church, for the apostles who still had the swellings of the beatings they received on their backs, to have ignored this problem. It would have been easy for us to justify their reasons for doing so. We're so busy. The church is growing. We don't have time for this. They should have thought about this before they moved to Jerusalem. What did they think was going to happen? Here's one that I've been guilty of before. If they're going to move here, how come they didn't learn the language first? Ouch. That's been an area where God has really had to do some work on me. See, I grew up in a small town. Ashland, Illinois, where we had no immigrant population. If you were from Missouri, you were considered a foreigner. I don't know where you're at, but here's where God has been working on me through His Word. First, when it comes to people who are immigrants, this is nothing political. This is simply biblical. Okay? The Bible tells me repeatedly throughout both the Old and the New Testaments to care for those who are vulnerable, especially the immigrant or the alien. I tried to learn three languages over the course of five years. Paid private school money for four of those years. It's the worst grades I ever got in school. I don't remember a lick of it, as you can tell from my attempts to pronounce Greek words. Then last year, while I was over in Morocco right before the pandemic, right as the pandemic broke out on March 7th, 2020, I got very sick, sicker than I've ever been in my life, lost 10 pounds in four days. This thing called amoebas, don't get one, or many of them, whatever they are, there's millions of them, you don't want them. I was afraid I wasn't gonna be able to go home. And so I was taken to the hospital where no one spoke English. I had a translator with me for a few hours that I was there, but that was it. Everything else I realized I was completely 100% vulnerable. And those nurses and those doctors, they got me better. And I was able to get on an airplane and go home and see my family. And I'll be eternally grateful for that. And I put those 10 pounds back on in a hurry. But then, and I've told this story before, but it is so central to my story that you need to hear it again, I believe. When we started building and delivering beds to kids in Omaha who sleep on the floor, which is like about two to 4% of every child growing up doesn't have adequate bedding sleeping on the floor, in other words. And while we had thought we were just gonna be helping out local people there, what we recognized is that a majority of the beds were being delivered to refugees from Myanmar. If you watch the news, you'll notice that Myanmar has been on the news again because how horribly they are treating their people there. Many of these people came as refugees or Christian people. They were being shot at by their own government. I mean, that, are you supposed to like break out the English flashcards while you're chasing bullets? It really struck me hard. And so... As we started delivering beds to these kids, one of the things we recognized is whenever we went to a refugee's house, there was a stark contrast between those who had been living in poverty for some time, generally became some type of of hoarders. I can see why, if you don't have much, you hang on to everything you have. But whenever we delivered to a refugee's house, what we learned is that they had absolutely nothing. A vast majority of the time that we would deliver to these children when we left, the only pieces of furniture that were in their entire house were the beds that we delivered to them. And one December, shortly after these refugees, and I kind of forgot to mention that they had actually all relocated to one apartment complex as refugees. They had about 500 people living there. What had happened is that the city had come in and condemned the housing apartment they were in and had forced them to throw everything away so they had nothing again for the second time in about a year. So as we were delivering to one of the new apartments, there was about six inches of snow on the ground and all the sidewalks were covered with ice. This family lived on the third floor of this apartment unit. We were parked about 200 feet from the door. That's as close as we could get. And when I went up to knock on the door to check and make sure everything was okay and saw a completely empty house and said, yes, the beds will fit here, the grandpa in the family, who was about 70 years old by my best guess, didn't speak a lick of English, Didn't have any shoes at all. Refused to let us carry the beds up by ourselves, but insisted on walking all the way out to the truck multiple times with his bare feet and six inches of snow and with ice all over the road in order so that his kids could sleep in beds. The guys that moment humbled me. And I realized um, that I could be in those same shoes. I could have been a person who is a refugee, an alien in a foreign land, as the Bible talks about. And when we talk about reaching those who are around us, the reality is is we have to recognize that if we're going to go from dividing to multiplying, we have to value the vulnerable. We have to recognize that every person, no matter what their legal status is, that's not our business, that's for the politicians to figure out that every single person who lives in, they, they, they bear the image of God wherever they're at in the world. And we are to honor that image of God, and we are to value the vulnerable. And again, I don't care who you vote for. Like, I'll be really honest with you. I'm really frustrated with both parties. What has been happening, as we have seen continually through Washington, is they have had opportunities to fix that broken mess that immigration is in the United States and the only thing I could figure out, if you can't fix it over the course of 40 years, the only thing that that must mean is that most of the people in power must see immigrants and refugees as people who are pawns in their political game instead of people who are created in the image of God. We as the church must be different. We as the church must see the value of God in each and every person, just as the early church did, just as the Israelites were commanded to do in the Old Testament, just as we are commanded to do. And whether those, those vulnerable people in the Old and New Testament in our world are widows or orphans or refugees or immigrants or the disabled or those with a family unit that's been broken in one way or another, they are to be cared for by the church. So we must value the vulnerable. But second, What we'll see in this next verse is to acknowledge the problem and accept responsibility. Now I want you to notice not just what I said there, but what I didn't say. I did not say that we always have to take the blame for it. Because the reality is is that everybody in our culture today wants to cast blame on people. They wanna blame somebody else for the problems that exist. And I have zero interest in casting blame on anyone. What I think that we need to do is we need to accept the responsibility. There's a difference between casting blame and being blamed and accepting the responsibility. When we say we're going to accept the responsibility, what we say is this might not be our fault, but we are going to be the ones as God's children who Christ has died for that are a part of the solution. We're going to be the people who accept responsibility in our culture. It's not our fault that our culture doesn't know God's word, but we will take the responsibility to share God's word with our culture. It's not our fault if you were born into a highly dysfunctional family, but we will take the responsibility to walk with you and to make sure that the dysfunction ends with your generation. It's not our fault if a teenager gets pregnant with an unwanted child, but we will take the responsibility as Christians to make sure that both the mama and the child is fully loved and cared for. It's not our fault that Columbus is a major hotspot for human trafficking in our country, but we will take the responsibility as Christians to raise awareness and to work together with whoever we can, as much as we can, as long as we can, to end trafficking in our area. It's, it's not our fault that children in our local school districts don't have enough food to eat and to be healthy, but we will take the responsibility with the, to partner with the schools to provide those backpack meals for the kids who are in need. And it's not our fault that there are 400,000 street kids, homeless children in Kenya who slip on the streets under overpasses, but we will take the responsibility to partner with missionaries on the ground there to make sure that we are making a difference in as many of those 400,000 kids as we possibly can. Why do we do this? Why in the world would we take this responsibility? Why did the early church take this responsibility to care for the vulnerable? I'll tell you why. Because it wasn't Jesus' fault that I sinned against God or that you sinned against God, that we were separated by the sin that we have from God. But even though it wasn't his fault, he made it his responsibility to carry that cross up Calvary and to become an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we could live as God's sons and daughters. It wasn't God's fault that human beings universally experienced death as a result of sin. But he took the responsibility to raise his son Jesus from the dead so that you and I could one day experience the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our own bodies ourselves when he returns. Church. Because God took the responsibility for what is not his fault, we as well as God's sons and daughters who have been filled with this Holy Spirit, who he died for, who Jesus Christ died for, that we will accept the responsibility in our culture to be salt and light in our broken world. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Verse 2. It says the twelve, meaning the twelve apostles, summon the whole company of the disciples upon learning about this problem. And they said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. That almost sounds a little bit snobbish, and it does in English. But let me tell you what's going on here. That word for wait is the word for serve. And later on it talks about serving the word of God. And what they're saying is we have to keep the main thing the main thing here, but we can't neglect this either. And after valuing the vulnerable and accepting, acknowledging the problem and accepting responsibility, we see that we make sure that the temporary problem does not distract us from our permanent vision. And in order to do that, what that means is that we have to entrust or empower other people in the church to make sure that every person who serves here, is, who worships here, is serving in ministry. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You have spiritual gifts. You have passions and desires to reach your community. God wants to work through you to do this. Amen? Some of you are like, I don't know. Even me? Yes, even you, especially you. So we make sure the term, the permanent problem, the temporary problem does not distract us from our permanent vision. But listen to what they do in verses 3 through 6. It says, Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation. Character matters. Full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the service, again, ministry of the Word. And this proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen. A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who we'll see later on in the next chapter, ends up being the first Christian martyr. And then it goes through six other men here who all have Greek names. Did you, did you notice what they did here? They recognized that, that the way to reach the vulnerable was to empower those who were also vulnerable. <laughs> what they did is they were all From Galilee, they were all Hebrew or Aramaic speakers. And all seven of these names that are mentioned are Greek names. They empowered people, gave them the purse strings to fulfill this mission. This is is remarkable. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Because you might think that, hey, I'm not a teacher or whatever else. What I do is not important. That's not what's in this text. What they say is that you're you're a messenger of the gospel. Whether you're serving the word of God or whether you're serving food, you can be a witness. You're doing God's work. And so what we see, the final thing, how we go from dividing to multiplying, is that we use our power to empower Unlike the political structures of today, unlike the billionaires of today who use their power to keep getting richer or more in power, what we do as God's servants is we use our power to lift other people up, just as Jesus used his power to lift us up out of sin and death and darkness to life. We use our power to empower. I want to notice what happened here in verse 7. We see so many other accounts in the book of Acts. We see so many other accounts of the powerful preaching. We see so many other accounts of the miracles that are done that lead people to faith. And here we have what happens is delegation leads people to faith. (laughs) That doesn't sound quite as cool, does it? But it's every bit as important. Every bit as important. When they empowered the people to care for their widows. Here's what happened. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And here's who came to faith. A large people, a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Did you hear that? It was the other religious leaders who would have been in charge of this on the Jewish side of things. They saw the love that the early church had for the widows. And that is what helped them come to faith. I'm telling you, as important as it is for you to share the word of God verbally, it's also vitally important that we share the word of God with our hands and with our feet. Here's what happens. When we choose multiplication over division, God multiplies our impact. Church, what we want is we want to see God multiply our impact here at East Point. God has set us here in this region, in this area on the east side that is ripe for the reaching. I've looked at the demographics. I've looked at the statistics. I see how many people in our immediate area are just struggling to get by and who are in need of hope. It's not going to be me reaching them. It's going to be all of us together reaching them. And in July and August, we're going to start to focus on rebuilding our volunteer teams. And the reality is, is we need you. Look at your neighbor and say, East Point needs you. Go ahead, look at your neighbor and say, East Point needs you. Yeah, that's just warming you up for the phone call you're going to get from one of us when we say East Point needs you. <laughs> but as we start doing this, we need you to be all in. Because the reality is, is that just as people came to faith because people cared about their widows, when we start launching up the ministries of our church again, caring for children, caring for people in need in our, our area, caring for the backpack program, the kids are in the backpack program, people will come to faith when they see our love in action. Because if they're going to see God do what only He can do in us and through us, it's going to take all of us. You know what? That's just the way God wants it. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that You cared for us when we were most vulnerable, when we were drowning in sin when we were trying our own way of life, instead of following you, you loved us unconditionally and cared for us and laid down your life for us. And Jesus, as we receive your free gift of grace, but as we also take up our crosses and follow you, we recognize that we're needed in our world. Holy Spirit, I recognize that you have filled each follower of Christ here with your spirit that you have given each person a heart for people who are in need. You have given each person gifts that they are to use in serving others. And while those gifts will ultimately go to bring a lot of fulfillment in our own lives, Lord, we recognize it could be a life and death difference for somebody else. And so, Lord, we choose to focus on your word and what you have called us to do, how you have called us to love, We recognize, Lord, in our world that is so divisive and so politically divided that we simply want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That we want to follow your word. And see, that is more important than everything else. And so we trust in you, and we choose to follow you, Jesus. Take us out into the streets where you would have us to serve. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.